abuse is isolating. And if that story is festering in your head, it can cause a lot of dysfunction and pain. And and if you have this desire to get well, the hardest thing to do, and, and I know it's hard, is to find a safe person to begin to process it with because you cannot heal in isolation. How do we pick up the pieces after enduring harm and abuse? What does it look like to start trusting those around us when we've experienced trauma in our lives? These are questions we're discussing this week as we talk with Mary DeMuth, author of We Too, about the sexual abuse within the walls of church. This topic is often overlooked, but with recent offenses in the SBC, we wanted to talk about the different perspectives of sexual abuse and what it looks like in overcoming these traumatic events. Let's dive right in with Mary Jane. We are for the spiritual nomads, the outcasts, and the ones who desire to ask the hard questions. A shelter in the desert, a safe place to share our thoughts, our hopes, and our dreams. We are pursuing the truth, and we don't care about the consequences. We invite you to come and sit at our table and be a part of our tribe. We are brave. We are bold. We are the Reckless Pursuit. Hey everyone, welcome to The Reckless Pursuit. My name is Cody. And my name is Elaine. And this is episode 92. And today we are talking with Mary DeMuth, author of We Too. We're revisiting something we haven't talked about since the very beginning of this entire podcast, almost two years ago now. And this is a topic that is extremely heavy, but hopefully through this conversation sheds light on this issue so much more and just offers a better resource for people who have experienced what we're talking about. And what we are talking about is sexual abuse in church, especially with minors. Uh, there's, a, there's a big emphasis on uh, abuse with minors and uh, just abuse in general and just the different shapes and forms that can take and even how to stay involved in a church after being harmed through such a thing, how to find comfort in church and also knowing how to get out of those situations. We just cover a whole lot of ground. As a matter of fact, this episode is, uh, it ended up being pretty long. So we're just going to get right to this conversation with Mary DeMuth, author of We Too. Hey, everyone. We are talking with Mary DeMuth, author of 39 different books, including We Too, the book that we're actually going to be talking about in this episode. Mary, how are you doing today? I am good. I had three speaking engagements yesterday, so my voice is a little gravelly, but oh, wow. other than that, I'm doing great. Yeah, that's awesome. Very good. Well, we're only going to make you talk for another 30 minutes or so. <laughs> that's awesome. It'll be fine. <laughs> well, Mary, let's just get right into it. This is a topic we uh, we have addressed, whoa, man, back on like episode six. So it's mm -hmm. been like a year and a half, almost yeah. two years since we've talked about this. And it's, it's due to come around again because there's a bunch of uh, conversation about this right now. So Mary... Let's just kind of get right into the weeds here. What got you into writing about this? Uh, and and let's just hear your story. Yeah, so I've been actually talking about this for a couple decades now and felt a little bit like a voice crying out in the wilderness and um, basically just running around making people uncomfortable for a couple of years, <laughs> Yeah, um, <clears throat> which is a really great ministry to have. But um, I agree. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I uh, am a sexual abuse survivor. I was um, molested for a year as a kindergartner and um, in my very unsafe neighborhood, my babysitter would push me out um, to be molested by these two teenage boys and there was no grooming that happened. They just did it. And uh, I did try to actually, I was a little bit plucky and, and, and did try to tell. I told her and she said that she would tell my mom. And so I thought everything would be okay, but then it kept continuing. And, you know, only later, years later to find out she didn't tell my mom. And um, so in my little five-year-old heart, I thought there is not one human on this earth who will protect me. And so I learned how to sleep and that's how I protected myself. I would just pretend to sleep. And that was what enabled me to stay away from them for the, about the last month of my kindergarten year. And then thankfully we moved away um, and I, I felt like a lot of my life was spent running away from predatory people. Felt like that incident um, over the period of a year had marked me. And uh, 
And so that's kind of the heart behind why I've been talking about this issue a really long time. I've written a lot of books, but this story is mentioned in quite a bit of them. And uh, I really feel like the church at times has been really amazing and at times has been really horrid. So I really feel like, um, you know, God's raised me up for you know, lack of a better term to be a prophetic voice to the church that I love. I'm not out of the church. I'm still there. And I want to raise awareness. And I also want to help leaders to really understand the long-term nature of trauma. Mm. That's good. So your experience, uh, it took place outside of the church, right? In a way, yes. I found out later that these were Mormon boys. So um, that they were within a church structure, and they're also Boy Scouts. And so you can imagine um, my triggering whenever I see a Boy Scout, I get a little bit um, upset or, or scared. But I, yes, it wasn't like it was a youth pastor or anything right. like that. That's still, uh, most people I don't think associate missionary Mormon boys with that. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, <laughs> that's one outside of what I've heard even. Yeah. So tell us a yeah. little about your book and what you address in We Too and just kind of some of, uh, some of what that covers. Yeah, so I just made it a real easy way of um, looking at it. We looked at the past, the present, and the future. In the past, I looked at the biblical narrative. I was recently speaking to a group of pastors, and they were asking, well, what can we do? And I said, well, first of all, share stories like mine from the pulpit because Mm -hmm. we feel like we're really weird. Second of all, just preach the Bible because um, actually, if you go through the narratives of Scripture, you'll see a lot of rape narratives, and we just don't see them preached about very often. Um, so I go, and then I also look at the whole history of the church as much as I can in one chapter. I was really surprised at um, in the very beginning of church, this issue was raised. I think it was in the first, second century, something like that. And there was someone that raised up and said, this is wrong. There was clergy sexual abuse going on. And then again, right before the Reformation, it happened again. And then interestingly enough, one of the things that happened after the Reformation is the Catholic Church they had been going in the right direction, but then they circled the wagons because they'd had this like extreme, extreme schism in their mind. And so they, in order to not have that happen again, became very private. And that kind of culture of hushiness, for lack of a better term, um, stayed with them, but it also followed the Protestants as well. And we have just as many uh, scandals in our uh, realm as the Catholics do. And, um, And so, yeah, I look at the past, I look at the present, I look at the current situation, what happened pre-Me Too, post-Me Too, what's happening right now, and then I look at the future as how can we do differently? How can we look at this issue with an eye toward redemption? And speaking last night to a group of people, and I was trying to convey and hopefully did convey that um, those who are broken are actually a gift to the body of Christ. And we see them as detriments. We see them as, you know, oh, something to, you know, that's going to drain our resources. But people who know their lack know that they need Jesus. And when you have that much need for Jesus, he tends to shine through you more. And so if you want to see more of Jesus, find a broken person. Yeah, That's good. That's great. Yeah. What was a turning point for you? I, I Going through something as a child, uh, my mom was uh, molested as well as a child, and it followed her her entire mm-hmm. life. Yep. Uh, and she never really got over that. It was never something she was able to get through. So for you, what was a turning point where you were able to actually go from, oh, wow, this is you know something that has happened to me to something I'm comfortable speaking about confidently to help someone else? Yeah, I think... Um, one of the things I've learned over the years is that God uses our unique makeup as an avenue toward healing. And my unique makeup is as a communicator. And so had I kept the story inside, I would not be speaking to you today, obviously. Um, My mode of healing, and some people are not like this, but this is mine, um, was to talk about it. And I met Christ at 15 and I began to talk about it then. Um, I didn't prior to that. It was like something in me just began to stir. And thankfully, um, although I was definitely an oversharer, um, especially in college, I don't know why, it's beautiful grace, but I was connected with people in the church um, and within ministries and stuff like that, college ministries, who listened and who wept and who prayed. 
And so I would say the turning point was then, you know, of course I've had counseling, I've gone through EMDR, I've done all those things, but the real bedrock of the transformation and change was just being able to tell my story and someone to listen and say, that is terrible. (laughs) And uh, let, let me carry that with you. I have met a lot of people, you know, after I tell my story, the lion's share people that come up to me afterwards and share their story for the first time are in their 60s and 70s. Oh, wow. And it's because they grew up in a major culture of silence. Yeah. And they thought that, to, that they just had to suck it up and they had to figure it out on their own. But what I have found is it just festers inside and it, it poisons you. So you have to get the poison out. I'm curious to know that if, if, if you've ever have been met with like resistance, because you said, you know, you've written 39 different books and you said uh, your story kind of follows a couple of those books. Like, has anybody from the church um, tried to hush you about it and say, oh, no, that doesn't actually happen or like anybody um, upset that you're sharing your story? Um, yes, of course that's happened. Um, one of the things that's a little bit of my superpower is when you have a rape story like mine, people are really hesitant to criticize you. So um, I do have that in my weird favor. Um, but yes, of course, um, I've certainly gotten my share of criticism about you know people saying, this is not as big of an issue as you think. And I would retort, it's worse than you think. And I think there's a lot of people out there who you know, I think we talked about this earlier when we had another conversation, but I think people, they silo their faith and they don't look at it in an Eastern way. They look at it in a Western way. Eastern way is Jesus as center or Jesus as hub. And then your whole life emits from that. So many of us in the West put Jesus in this little silo and we have these different parts of our lives in silos. And they're in our religious silo. We think to ourselves, that has to be my happy, safe place. So if there is a pastor that has abused a child or if there is sexual abuse happening or whatever it is that mars the church, we are very upset about it because it messes with our paradigm of needing a happy world in that particular silo. Yeah, that's really good. So let's kind of, I want to get into the healing side of it for sure. And that's really what I want to focus in. But before we get into that, let's talk about the, uh, the big elephant in the room, I guess, right now what's going on in the SBC. And uh, in our previous conversation, and I'll cut this out if you don't want it shared or not, but you're a part no. of the SBC. Yes. And so a lot of people like, you know, they kind of bundle all this together. It's like, oh, all of that is bad. How can someone speaking out in, you know, uh, being a voice for those who have been through sexual abuse, how can she be a part of this? Let's just kind of talk a little bit about what's going on there and uh, address some of this bundling of things together and kind of addressing this black and white, everything bad or everything good kind of stuff. Yeah, the older I get and the longer I walk with Jesus, I see that faith is so much more about nuance than black and white. And in my mind, I see it as um, as the largest denomination in the United States. <laughs> and uh, if as it goes, others follow, tends to be. And so um, if they are going to begin to talk about this issue, then I'm all for it. Now, are they doing it perfectly? No. Does anyone do it perfectly? No. Um, I, I do go to a th- Southern Baptist church, but it's very loosely affiliated. So I've never even, like if someone like stopped me on the street and said, are you Southern Baptist? I would have never said, oh yes, I'm Southern Baptist. I don't have a lot of allegiance to that. I have a lot of allegiance to Jesus. And, um, and so whenever I have that opportunity to talk about how we can do better, that's kind of how I view it. Yeah. I, does that have me run the risk of being lumped in or, you know, said, well, she's part of the system or whatever. Yes, of course. And, and yes, that's, that does sting and it's hard, but I'm willing to receive it because I understand what's behind it and I understand the anger. So it's, it's something I'm willing to do. It doesn't mean it's an endorsement. It just means that whenever I get a chance to tell my story and talk about how we can do better, I want to do it. Yeah. I was going to say, like, I, think that's a good thing for you to be able to share your story with so much flack about these different churches and stuff, but to be able to share your story and and maybe help guide people in the right direction with that. And I'm finding it's more about wooing than hitting people over the head. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit at a time. People, if you look at the dynamics of change, people don't change. People typically will not change their worldview. And the studies have been that if you do change the way you think, it's because of the community around you mm. and it's, it's incrementally. And so if we want to change a community, whether it be the SBC or the Catholic Church or whoever, 
it's going to be incrementally and it will come from leaders and it will be the whole community moving forward. Um, it's hard to be a lone wolf crying out in the wilderness. And so uh, that's frustrating. I wish I could snap my fingers right now and fix everything um, and all the horrific things that have gone on in the name of Jesus. Absolutely. I wish I could fix that, but it's going to be a, it, it's been, um, what has it been like 2019 years right. that this is going on. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to, it's going to take some time to shift that <laughs> ship to the other side. For sure. So what are some uh, proper ways and then maybe some not so proper ways you have seen this, uh, this specific topic addressed specifically inside the church? What are some good teachings and maybe some not so good teachings you've witnessed? Well, um, good teachings is, is kind of, boring and simple, and that is pastors allowing stories from the front. And um, I've been in church a really long time, and I can count on one hand um, how many times I've seen my story or a domestic violence story from the front spoken about in a redemptive way. You see a lot of things like, oh, I was addicted to drugs and now I'm not, or oh, my marriage is falling apart and now it's not. But we don't see, oh, I was sexually assaulted by my husband and now, and the church helped me get free. And you just don't see a lot of those right. things from the front. And last night as I was speaking, I had people come up and just say, I just have never heard that before from front of a church. And, and, and that makes me sad. And so that's just a really simple thing a pastor can do is just to welcome those stories. The negative things is, of course, when um, I think when churches become kind of political or they become affiliated with one or another political party and make it into a political issue is just a mess. I don't think that works at all. And then also not to address the actual biblical text. So yes, some of those stories are awful. Um, let's talk a little bit about Tamar and some of the other, Dinah and some of these other horrid things that happen. And one of the things I found is in researching that is every time there was sexual violence like that in the Bible, the direct result was some sort of war. And so you just kind of see just the horrificness of it. And you even see it in David's life. And, and I know some scholars would argue with me, but I tend to think that she had no ability to consent Bathsheba agree, and that yeah. that was rape. And, and so, and you look at again, the same pattern after he has done this horrific thing and he is called to be a shepherd of the nation of Israel. And what does Nathan the prophet use as a story to get him to figure it out? It's a sheep shepherd narrative. And he basically says, you have been the worst kind of shepherd ever. And, um, and so this, and that's kind of my call forward in, if we look at the New Testament and Jesus as good shepherd, and you look at Psalm 23 and some of those other amazing shepherd Psalms and Ezekiel 34 that talks about how, you know, you haven't been good shepherds. You've made yourself fat. You've taken care of only yourself. I think we need to return to that narrative of what is a good shepherd, not a good CEO, but what does a good shepherd yeah. look mm, like? That's good. I think that's a big issue that we, we see kind of come up quite a mm -hmm. bit is the idea of running things like a CEO versus running things like a community or running things like a shepherd. Instead of being a leader, it's more commander. So I think that if we can get that shift down so much, life would be given. But uh, to kind of... I guess ask a, another kind of <laughs> this whole conversation is hard. It's it's all a heavy thing. So without getting into um, we'll just have fun with it. <laughs> right, yeah, without getting into uh, egalitarianism versus complementarianism and all that, because that's not what this is about. Uh, is there any kind of um, I guess burden, or I'm trying to think of the right word? Is there any kind of like pushback, or is anyone's voice being silenced? Or is that a general issue because uh, the whole idea that women aren't allowed to speak? And I know that most people don't really hold to this view a whole lot anymore. But even today, like I got backlash from someone literally saying like women aren't allowed to speak. Like, what are you saying? Like, literally, like today, I was just in a conversation with someone on, on Facebook said, like, I get off Facebook. But yeah. <laughs> like, have, have you seen anything like that? Has that caused any hurt? Have you witnessed anything like that? Absolutely. And I think that's why um, one of my chapters is about theology, because I think our theology drives us. And um, if I was going to place myself on the spectrum of those two, I would be somewhere in the middle um, 
because I've, I have actually seen people in complementarian circles be awesome about this issue of abuse, and I've seen them be terrible. <laughs> and I've also seen it on the other side. So it's, it's not, um, I've seen some very, uh, I mean, look at Bill Hybels, and he was definitely egalitarian, and yet he was preying on women. And so I kind of view it more as a heart issue. If you, uh, whatever theological perspective you have, if your heart is not right and you are preying on others or encouraging others to do the same or covering up when others do so, then we've got a problem. Because if we just say it's it's complementarian versus egalitarian and the egalitarians are winning and the complementarians are losing, then what about the egalitarians who have systems that are still oppressing others? And what about the complementarians who are doing a good job and you know, vice versa? Like I'm not saying one's good, one's bad, because we've got this is this is a church issue, a church-wide issue, because it's a humanity-wide issue. Yeah. yeah, that's good. I really like that because I mean, just kind of going back to what you were saying about politics. Anytime you start camping in one side or the other, you know, God is always somewhere in between. In my in my ex, my limited experience, God is always somewhere in between both extreme points mm-hmm. of view, right? And so, just kind of taking that whole that whole thing away and saying like, let's come to a common ground. It's not about a this or that, it's all about heart and it, and it can happen anywhere. Mm. And I think that's powerful. And it and to be fair too, I think in those highly controlled um, patriarchal systems, it flourishes a little better, <laughs> a yeah. lot better. So I'm not saying that, I'm just saying that um, when we're having conversations about it, right. we have to allow for that nuance. And we also have to take off our social media hats and sit down across a table from someone and have a conversation because I've got friends on all perspectives. I'm sure that I have friends who think I should never speak. So I, and I understand that because I've studied it all. You know, I've been down that road and had to grapple with it myself. So, but the person sitting across from me is a human being of nuance and is not just in one camp or the other. We're a lot more complicated than than that. Yeah, that's really good. So Mary, shifting gears here a little bit, you have uh, someone, you have people come up to you all the time sharing their stories. What is a catalyst for healing going forward for people who have been through sexual abuse, especially in church, but honestly, anywhere? Yes. And I think, you know, what you just mentioned is really important. If it has happened in church, it's a very unique struggle because then you've got this, um, this, tangledness of faith and abuse and faith and God and abuse. And and so I have found that when I've talked to people who've had it happen in churches, their way back, so to speak, usually means that they need to leave church for a period of time because of all of the trauma and the triggering and all of that. And, and I totally get that. I understand. But I will say that um, one thing I've learned in my life is that Though we have been uh, broken in negative community, the way back is always good community. And it really seems unfair. Um, Like, okay, God, (laughs) this person violated me in every possible way. How can I possibly trust anybody else? And part of that is just learning what safe community is. Um, And that's really how I healed. I mean, just giving you that story of college is that community was part of my healing people who would listen, people who would just be Romans 12, 15 with me, they would just cry with me. And we look at Job's friends and they were amazing for a little bit. <laughs> they, they saw him with his scabs and he was, you know, grabbing the, the pots and scraping his skin and they got in the dust with him and they cried and they shut their mouths. And then the rest of the 40 chapters, they started talking and bad things started happening yeah. after that. But, um, but you know, there is that that um, essence. I think abuse is isolating, and if that story is festering in your head, it can cause a lot of dysfunction and pain. And and if you have this desire to get well, the hardest thing to do, and and I know it's hard, is to find a safe person to begin to process it with, because you cannot heal in isolation. Mm. Mm, that's good. What is a safe person? What are some signs of a safe person? Well, certainly not someone that, um, you know, tries to trump you with their awful story or (laughs) gives you one of those really insincere things like, what were you wearing? Or, you Mm -hmm. know, well, maybe this is part of God's plan. You know, those kind of stupid cliches that we hear all the time. 
um, really it is someone who will listen. And you, you can watch someone and see how they tenderly process things with others. They tend to be those folks who stay in the nuance. They're not necessarily black or white on issues, but they're, they're willing to to carry the weight. And that's really important because someone who's been through trauma and sexual trauma in particular, they can either be like, um, they can say, oh my gosh, I'm never having sex again for the rest of my life because they're so freaked out. Or they can be excessively promiscuous because they feel like they're worth nothing and they've messed it all up anywhere. Someone else has messed it up for them actually. And they, and so people in church can be very freaked out by that. And so we've got to have that, that cloak of love around us to be safe people, that nothing surprises us. We keep a straight face. We love despite whatever they're going through. And we determine to dignify the image of God inside of someone who's struggling. Mm -hmm. That's good. Mary, you just said something that reminded me of a question I was going to ask before I got distracted with other questions. Uh, You had said something along the lines of uh, just how Uh, God didn't allow or someone saying like, oh, well, you know, God allowed this for something greater. Let's kind of talk for that a second, because I know that a lot of people have got answers like that Mm -hmm. uh, because people don't know how to process when bad things happen to good people. Right. We just had an episode with Thomas Orr, who has a book about it. Right. Like these bad things happen. And one group uh, doesn't know what to do with it. The other group tries to justify it through God's, you know, you know, omnipresence and always in control. And it's like, well, is God in control? Is God not? What what uh what advice do you have to someone who's just like God? Why did this happen? Why did you allow this to happen to me? First, I will say I hope they're asking that question because that's a human question, and and any human being would ask that question, especially as I became a mom. Um, I would look at my kids and think if I knew they were being sexually assaulted, I would protect them and I would beat up the person who was doing it or send them to jail or something. You know, of course, I'm, I'm a loving parent. And so then the question became for me, if I'm a loving parent, I'm just a human and I would intervene, then why didn't God? And I have had to hold that question in tension. And um, every year it gets a little bit better. I don't have an answer to it yet, um, just to be super honest. And I've actually viewed that as part of my relationship with God because I think um, he wants to talk with us. He wants to commune with us. And he already knows we have these angry questions. Why not enter into relationship with him about it rather than stuff it and pretend like I can't talk to God about this because I'm mad at him about it. The, you know, of course, the longer I go, the more I, I go to the idea of story. And there's this magnificent story that I don't understand. And as a novelist myself, I understand that there has to be dark places in stories. There has to be plot twists. And I also understand that there is evil in this world and that eventually that will be vanquished. But right now we're living in the tension. And even Jesus said, my peace I leave with you, but the world's, you know, it's going to be bad. And I don't know where we picked up this idea that once you meet Jesus, everything's going to be awesome because oftentimes it's unawesome. And um, we forget we're in a spiritual battle. So the moment you do meet Jesus, there's going to be all sorts of spiritual battle going on because you've just kind of, you know, to use a Star Wars meta- metaphor, gone from the dark to the light. So um, it, it's, it's something I hold in tension. I don't tell people that I figured it out. I do understand the arguments theologically of sovereignty and free will. I do, but there's still a little part of me that just doesn't quite get it. Yeah. Thank you for your honesty with that, because I think that that's the beauty of just allowing that mental struggle instead of feeling like you have to come to an answer with with it, which is so, so much of like just what we're learning on this whole journey and what all we're doing here with this show is just not everything has an answer and that's yeah. okay. And that's just kind of the beauty of it. So, Sorry. I was I was going to say, how do you think that the church or even society um, should not move on, but like how we should tackle this issue in the future, especially with the We Too movement and your book. And you, you talked about the, you know, pre-We Too, during We Too and post. Like, what do you think um, has to happen or is going to happen the, um, as we move forward with sexual abuse in church and outside of church? Right. So the premise of the book is is that we heal better together. And so having these safe communities is, is really important. So whether you're in the church or outside of the church, to find a community of people 
who love you well. In terms of going forward, I think we need to just get rid of this stupid narrative about especially people afraid of um, these false reports. It is excessively rare, but it is the argument I hear all yeah, the time and I am too. over it. <laughs> Because it's, it is rare, and if you report it to the authorities, it gets um, ironed out. Yes, it's terrible if you've been falsely accused, but for the most part, the great majority of people who make an outcry are telling the truth. And we also have to understand the nature of trauma, that if they tell the truth, the story may shift here and there because we don't remember everything accurately, especially when we've been in a traumatic event. And so I think there just needs to be a little more education going forward. What does what is trauma? What does it do to people? We've done plenty of studies in terms of Vietnam vets in particular about what does trauma do to someone. We somehow have empathy for that, but not for sexual abuse. And they say that sexual abuse can actually exceed the trauma of those who are in wartime combat. And so we need to understand this and need a lot more tender and a lot less judgmental. I definitely have heard people say, you need to get over that. That was, you know, over this many years ago, really misunderstanding the nature of how this is the gift that keeps on giving in a very frustrating way. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think it's, I don't, I, I'm a guy. I don't, I don't, I haven't experienced, I mean, I know sexual uh, abuse happens to men as well, but it's much more rare, right? Uh, at least I, I could be misinformed of that, but I would think sexual abuse is more rare for men. But I've heard stories of Elaine and just like sexual gestures and she's mm -hmm. never had like full on sexual Physical, abuse. Yeah. yeah. But like even when she was a kid, she's had like lewd comments mm -hmm. and all kinds of things just directed to her. Older even. boys. Yeah. And uh, and it's prevalent in so many people, so many people that uh, that I talk to, so many women that I talk to have had some kind of experience it's varying on like the the degree severity, of intensity yeah. or severity, but that's not necessarily the point. The point is it's it's prevalent, and uh, just to kind of speak life into what you were saying about um, how we've got to quit dismissing stories about oh well yeah. what about these false narratives? Uh, I've had an experience with a false narrative. I had a girl in my whenever I was a youth pastor, I had a a, a young girl who actually had previously falsely accused a boy of raping her and like that was kind of presented to me as like hey be very careful when you approach this girl mm. but she was diagnosed it was the you know she was diagnosed with a mental illness um she had trauma from her father and there was all kind of this other drama associated with it and the boy was let go like that was there's investigative techniques put in place to filter right. those stories out and so one one bad story like that where you know, she has a, an actual diagnosis like she still has. There is this own thing. It's a different thing, but it is a problem that she is having to face. It is something, whether it be from trauma from her past, maybe she had sexual abuse. I don't know the whole details in the past, but there's a real thing there. And that doesn't discount someone else's story. And that that frustrates me as well. So thank you for speaking life into that. Well, and, and actually you're right and on ter in terms of that. Um, the Usually people that have false reports have some sort of mental illness. Um, there's some you know problem going on inside. Um, I also heard a stat recently that in terms of men and women, uh, I think it was 18% of women's first sexual experience was abuse mm. or oh, rape. Wow. I mean, that's pretty terrible. But then some of the other stats we think were really bad here in the United States, but some of the stats around the world are awful. So in terms of sexual harassment, like in Vietnam, 99% of women have experienced it. And so this is a global issue and we need to understand that um, that's why I have a, a, a chapter on theology. We need to understand a theology of the image of God in each one of us and that women just as much bear the image of God as, as men do. And we also need to have a theology of light, that there is darkness in this world, obviously, not hard to you know say that, um, but that there is light. And Jesus himself said, I am the light. And what does light have to do with that? It has to do with truth. Shedding light on things is to tell the truth about them. And so we do need to get into a place where we begin to tell the truth and welcome those kinds of stories. I love that. I, I know a common thing taught to me when I was in youth, and I've heard it so many times to like younger teen boys is, oh, well, you know, if you're if you're struggling with pornography or anything like that, it's like, well, talk to someone about it because sin flourishes in the dark. But you know, when you bring it to light, well, that that goes the other way too, and that 
that is a, a huge deal for this as well. Like these stories need to be shared and there needs to be light brought to them because where there is light, darkness cannot exist, right? So I love well, that. Well, yeah. And I love what you had to say about porn. I have another chapter on that mm -hmm. because yeah. I think um, it fuels everything. Oh, if completely. we want to step back and look at what's fueling all of this behavior, it's that. Yeah. I mean, especially if you look at um, a lot of, uh, you know, in some of those imageries or the images, um, the victim is saying, no, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. And the other person is overpowering, causing people to think that that is what the woman or the victim wants. If they say no, they don't mean it. And then um, just heard a statistic recently that if there is one image of child porn on a, com on a computer that the FBI has found out, that that represents 100 um, episodes of touch, inappropriate touch. And so it doesn't mean that the person has 100 victims, but they have at least touched inappropriately 100 different times. And so we just don't talk about this issue very much. There's a lot of shame associated with it, but we also have to talk about the evil of it because it is all about removing the image of God in someone and treating them as an object. Yeah. I remember whenever I was in college for one of my psychology classes, I actually had to write um, an essay about... Uh, it had something to do, um, the, like the class, the subject um, had something to do around sex. And so my essay was around um, pornography and how that actually um, can lead to sexual abuse. And I don't remember the exact statistic about it, but I remember one of the um, research articles that I had to read was um, like college dorms and frat parties and all of this stuff. And they were um, interviewing these different guys, um, trying to find the statistics on how pornography can lead to this, um, especially with rape victims at college parties and stuff. And the, just the statistic was a large of the of the men that they um, that had admitted to viewing pornography or having you know different things involved with it. And um, they would ask them like, "Would well, you think that sexual abuse is prevalent and everything?" And like some of the guys like had no idea that this was even a thing or that it was that bad or um, they had made up a lot of excuses of why sometimes it's okay or um, mm -hmm. just making excuses for it. And the number of the excuses matched the viewership of the pornography. And so I just like was kind of taken aback as I was doing my own research for this essay and just how prevalent that is. Yeah, I agree. And we can justify all sorts of things. <laughs> Doesn't make it right, but yeah. And if you're feeding your mind a steady diet of something like that, you're, and, and we, you know, let's talk a, very mildly or very quickly about marital rape. We've got that issue that people don't think is a thing either. I think that if there's a ring on your finger, that ring means consent. Um, but a lot of men who are addicted to porn get married and then they rape their wives. And part of that is making them do things that they've seen on screens or on paper. And that is also a thing that's happening as well. Yeah. And that's, that's a very real thing. And I know, um, what is it statistically? I, I actually know this one statistically 99.8% of men have viewed pornography in the United States or have been exposed to pornography in the United States. And I want to say it's over 80% are actively viewing pornography or have at some point in their life had an addiction to that. And yeah. it's a very real thing. There's a lot to, that goes into sex culture that feeds into this on both ends. I know the as someone who has struggled with pornography in that is something that I had to work through, I can definitely attribute to the mental shifts it can cause. I can attribute to the the thoughts it can lead to. I can attribute to the the terrible searches and all that's involved in that is not natural. It is not anything that is that is traditional in a marriage or a healthy relationship. That is just not normal. And that's a very real issue. And that's a whole other episode. That's a whole other thing to address. That's a whole other beast to kind of look at and say, okay, well, what is the desire versus what you're giving? You know, it's kind of like, well, you're hungry. I'm going to go eat a donut. Well, that's not healthy for you. You know, that's, you're taking in junk to fill a, a, a need in your life. So that's something else we can get into. But uh, for sake of time, I really want to talk about um, specifically dealing with forgiveness and that, you know, in your situation, I, I, some people's situation is different where they can bring to light something and maybe that person's going to get convicted and they're going to get theirs and justice is going to be served. And they have that 
not that it ever lessens the burden, but at least they have something they can lean on knowing that they received uh, it, in the most mild way a, a some kind of form of, uh, I guess, pushback for their action. But I, I know in your situation, most likely these kids went on and nothing ever came of it. And who knows who, how many other people, hopefully, you know, we all, I'm sure everyone who is a decent human being hopes they got their life together. But sometimes it's not easy to hope someone like that got their life together. It's, it's natural, you know, fleshy reaction to say, man, I hope they get theirs one day. What does forgiveness look like? How has that affected you knowing that those people just walked away? Yeah, it's been a long journey. And one of the cautionary things that I say to people that especially those who are walking alongside sexual abuse victims is we don't get to prescribe someone else's forgiveness journey. We do not get to act like the Holy Spirit in their lives. We do not get to say, well, have you forgiven? Because that is a very personal journey. And um, while I would definitely argue that getting to that place of forgiveness is healthy for you, it's going to take some time and to be gentle with yourself on that because this is a violation against another human being. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's as if someone harmed, if you were a child, it's as if someone harmed your child. If you look at the same thing, it would be the same kind of like offense um, to just gloss over it and do kind of an easy forgivism. Uh, glosses over the very real justice that's necessary. And the sad part is, is that, like you said, most people will not see justice on this earth. They will not see it recompensed. They will not see the person behind bars. I certainly didn't. And I had to get to a place where I wanted to have mental health. <laughs> and so I had to learn how to forgive. Um, and uh, over and over and over again, it wasn't just a one and done. Um, but that did set me free to be able to kind of move on with my life. Because if I didn't have that, if I, if I continue to hold on to the bitterness, then that would be a tie to that incident for the rest of my life. I wanted to let that go. Now, it does still affect me, of course. But, but yeah, but I th really want to say just be really tender with people who are on this journey because it's, it's, really, it's, it's really mean and uh, judgmental to assume someone hasn't forgiven mm -hmm. when they're in the middle of the journey and yeah. to force it is also abusive. Yeah. yeah, and I just want to kind of build on that, that I think forgiveness is definitely a process. And some days I think, yeah. I think some days, you know, forgiveness is like, yes, I forgive that person. The next day it's like, man, I hope they rot. <laughs> and, you know, it's, yeah. I'm sure it's a process. And so thank you for bringing light to that and just well, that reminder. And I was going to say just because you have forgiven that other person, that doesn't mean that you're not still traumatized. That doesn't mean that the hurt yeah. isn't still there <laughs> and that you're not still dealing with these things. And so just because you have forgiven someone, you know, it's completely selfish of somebody else to assume that you haven't just because that you are trying to express yourself on how um, you um, are trying to recover from what happened to you. Well, and I also have some interesting enemies on Twitter. And uh, last week or the week before, I had pedophile enemies. And uh, just to kind of give a little insight into this, they were all attacking me because they were saying that they should have, they had already served their time. They are on the sex registry. One of the person's names was like in the sex registry or something like that. And they were saying they should have full inclusion into a church. And I was saying, no, you've lost that right. Unless you're in an elderly congregation where there are 0% children, you cannot go. And they were telling me that I lacked grace. But what I was saying was, no, I actually have a really high view of grace. Um, it does, grace does not negate consequences, neither does forgiveness. And whether we see them meted out or not, it's still, there will be in the other side, you know, there will be consequences to what they do. But on this side, when I have control over who comes to my church and who has access to the children in my church, 100% of the time, if there's a sex offender, they're not going to be there. And that's not graceless. I think that's graceful for those who could be victimized. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So to kind of flip the tables here a little bit, what would be something if you were, I'm sure you've, you may have had this opportunity, but say there's someone who honestly had kind of repented, had come through this point of like, I did this thing. They have these regrets. What would be, I guess, what would you say to them? What would you say to someone who's on that side of things? 
Well, first, I think the fruit of repentance should be very obvious, and it usually comes out in their actions. And one of them would be if they were a convicted pedophile or they had pedophilic tendencies and they've repented of that and they've gotten help and serious help because the stats are that almost none reform. So we have to be very careful about believing the things that they say. But um, if, if it's in the rare case that that has happened, then they would be just as horrified to attend a church with children in it um, and would insist that they were never around them because just like an alcoholic would not frequent bars, someone who has that tendency would not frequent places where there are children and they would know their limitations and they would know their weaknesses and that they would self-impose um, restrictions on them because they know that because that's their tendency, they can never be around them again. So that doesn't have to do with grace. That It just shows their true repentance. They're truly repentant. They're not going to be the pedophiles attacking me, asking me why I can't, won't let them in the church. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, completely agree. I love that. So if there's someone listening to this right now, they've had this traumatic experience, whether they've been able to vocalize it with someone or not, what is just uh, something that you could say right now just to offer them I guess, a glimmer of hope or to speak life into their circumstances? I would say that, um, you know, that that journey sometimes can be very dark. And there were certainly times where I wanted to give up, you know, the, the just just trying and trying and trying. Jesus asked the paralyzed man this very important question, and he said, do you want to get well? And um, interestingly enough, if you look at that uh, interaction, the man never answered the question. He didn't say, yeah, Jesus, I want to get well. He just said, oh, well, you know, someone has to come, the stirring of the water, someone has to put me in the pool. And he just gave an excuse. Even so, even so he didn't answer the question, Jesus still healed him. Mm-hmm. And so we also have these, you know, things in the, in the New Testament where Jesus heals instantly. And then we've got some blind people who he has, they have to put more mud on their eyes and it's not quite there. And I think most of us are, are like that latter one. We are in a long process of healing and to be gentle to yourself and to know, um, I can say that over you know, how many years? It's been over 40 years since this has happened. It still does affect me today. It affects me less. And now I'm back in, I'm into a phase now where God's done so much healing that I'm able to have the joy of helping others. And so there is light at the end of that very dark tunnel. But also I would encourage you to get some help. Um, definitely find safe people. Definitely let your story out and also find some trauma-informed therapy that will help you, you know, maybe with some EMDR or some cognitive behavioral therapy or brain spotting. There's all sorts of different things going on that are helping trauma victims, but do get some help. That's good. What are some key signs to watch out for uh, if you're in your church or your workplace or whatever it is to help people just be aware if something like this is going on that's maybe not being noticed? On the on the side of the child, um, it would be a, a radical change in behavior. Bed wedding, um, a kid that was compliant suddenly becoming um, really, uh, you know, naughty, <laughs> you know, just doing things bad. Or someone who's typically very bad uh, and, and outworking their behavior that way who becomes silent and sullen. Um, in terms of people, uh, we have to become very trauma-informed. There's a book out there called, or predatory-informed, called Predators by Anna Salter. It's not something to read at night. It's very unsettling. But sadly, it's usually the person who is the nicest that is that is someone you need to worry about. There was a quote about Larry Nasser, the USAG gymnast um, doctor, who um, it said something like, he was astonishingly nice. And so if you have someone that, especially in terms of pedophilia, who is constantly wanting to be around kids, swinging them around, all the kids love him or her, and they seem to insert themselves into all those different spaces. I'm, I hate to say, well, then look at them negatively, but you kind of have to. They don't, pedophiles do not present as we think they do. And we also, even as a sexual abuse victim, I thought I'd had really good radar. I don't. I had to learn about what predators do um, to be able to spot them a little bit easier, but um, it's not easy. And I, that's why I think all of us need some training in it, especially church sure. workers. So um, just to kind of wrap all this together, if you could ask someone out there one question, just to kind of maybe a rhetorical question or something like that to get them on the process of 
of healing, and I, I say healing very carefully because that's it is a process. Uh, but just to give them a voice or to help them understand they have a voice, what question would you ask? The thing that's actually helped me the most, I guess the question would be, do you want to be all there for your relationships in your life? And what I have found is people tend to not want to pursue their healing because they think it's selfish or self-absorbed. And so then I will turn that around and say, actually, the best gift that you can give your loved ones is your healed heart. And so it's not selfish to heal. It's actually going to bless all your relationships. I met um, a woman after a talk and, and she was crying and she said, well, my mom, just like what you said, um, my mom has been struggling with this for years and years and years. And I said to her, she said, she's 70 years old. She finally told her story. I said, would it have been a gift to you if she had pursued healing earlier and she just burst into tears again? Yes. And so that's my encouragement um, to those who are surviving. Maybe you can't do it for yourself, but it will enhance your relationships and bless your relationships if you at least take those baby steps down that road to healing. That's so good. Mary, thank you so yes, much for this conversation. You. Thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for being a voice to a very real issue and, and speaking speaking grace into it, speaking life into it in a way that's that's not just bashing. I hear it so much that people just go in with a hammer and just start knocking stuff down. So thank you for for coming in gracefully and trying to build stuff back up. Thank you. I appreciate that. Mary, where can people find all of your your books and your work? Where's your hub at? My hub is marydemuth.com. And then I also have we2.org. And there's a 30-page resource for Christian leaders there of all different places people can go for help. And that's at we2.org slash pastors. And then there's a 21-day series, um, an email series of healing where I just kind of talk about some of my best practices in healing. Mm -hmm. And that's we2.org slash 21 days. And that's the number 21. Awesome. I will link up to all of that in the show notes so people can get get a hold of all of that. And Mary, I just I greatly appreciate it. I look forward to all the work you do going forward. And uh, I look forward to having more conversations yes. with you in the future. Awesome. Thanks so much. And you guys are great interviewers. Thank, <laughs> thank you. you. Everyone, I just want to thank Mary DeMuth once again for being on the show. And this is such a needed conversation. We talked about a couple different heavy subjects in the line of pornography and trauma and forgiveness and healing and all of those different things. And I just, again, want to thank Mary for continuing this conversation. Yeah, and all those resources she mentioned are in the show notes below. And I encourage you to hop down there. If that's something you need in your life, go down there, click that link, sign up and grab those free resources and pick up a copy of her book too. All that's linked up where you can... You can find Mary in all that she is doing. And Mary, thank you so much for just such an amazing, amazing conversation. Guys, we invite you to Nomads. It is a safe community for Christians to ask unsafe questions. And we love whenever you guys ask questions. We love to have you as part of the conversation. So if you haven't done so so far, click that link in the show notes and ask to be a part. You are invited. Also, if you know someone that would benefit from hearing this we ask you share this episode on with a friend sharing episodes on is the best way to keep the conversation going we love you guys and as always be brave be bold and be reckless we'll talk soon